Last week, we began a new sermon series, Letting Go, Letting God. And we began the series with a conversation about worry. How is it that we can avoid worry about the future when there's so much to worry about? This week, we turn our attention from the future to the past. How can we deal with our past that is often filled with mistakes and missteps, littered with grudges and resentments and animosity towards others? Last week, we focused on the future. This week, we want to focus on our past. How can God deal with our past in a way that keeps the past from destroying our future? Our text this morning comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter. I invite you to listen for God's word. Be on your guard. If another disciple sins, you must rebuke the offender. And if there is repentance, you must forgive. And if the same person sins against you seven times a day and turns back to you seven times and says, I repent, you must forgive. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we come before you. We ask that you would speak to us now, that you would open our ears and our eyes to receive what you have for us. For we pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. So a desperate motorist parked his car in a prohibited area and he attached a note to the windshield explaining his infraction. Simply read, I've driven around this block 20 times and I had to keep an appointment. Forgive us our debts. Returning to his car after the appointment, he found a ticket with a note attached reading, I've walked around this block for 20 years. If I don't give you a ticket, I could lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. Forgiveness. Just not easy to find. An old farmer was about to die, and for years he'd held a grudge against his neighbor over a property line dispute. His minister, visiting him at his bedside, told him that unless he forgave his neighbor, he would not be admitted to heaven. So the old man called his eldest son to his bedside in order to give him some final instructions. And he said, son, I'm not going to live long. And the preacher tells me that when I die, I won't go to heaven if I don't forgive that thief of a neighbor who stole my land. I forgive him. But son, you're young, you're strong, and you're going to live a long time. And if you ever forgive him, I'll haunt you the rest of your life. It's the desire to get even. It's powerful. And letting go of our resentments, our anger, and our grudges, it's not easy. Now, there's plenty of talk about forgiveness. Surprisingly little actual forgiveness in our experience. I mean, in the workplace, in our families, even in our churches, forgiveness can be difficult to come by. I run into people who say to me, Jeff, I forgive you, and I'll forget it. It's as if it never happened. But then they just keep bringing it up all the time, which simply says to me they haven't forgiven me at all. 
Now, it's clear that forgiveness is central to Christian faith. There's forgiveness from God for what we've done and what we have left undone through Jesus Christ. And we are called to forgive one another seven times a day if that's what it takes. In answering the question, how often should I forgive? Jesus answers, not seven times, but I tell you 77 times. And from the cross, Jesus looked down and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Return no one evil for evil, says the New Testament. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. Forgiveness. It's a Christian virtue and it's central to our faith. But we live in a world where we're encouraged to nurture our injuries into increasing victimhood and then to seek revenge. Ads for lawyers who can get you the justice you deserve are all over the airwaves. Just call Jacob. Microaggressions turn into lawsuits. Maybe you saw the article in this week's news about a student at Smith College. An African-American student was eating lunch in a dorm lounge when a janitor and a campus police officer walked over and asked her what she was doing there. The encounter left her, quote, near meltdown and continued a pattern of harassment at Smith. All I did was be black, she wrote. A law firm hired by Smith to investigate found no persuasive evidence of bias. It was determined that the student was eating in the dorm that had been closed for the summer. And the janitor had been encouraged to notify security if he saw unauthorized people there. So Smith College has emphasized reconciliation and healing. Engaging in all sorts of anti-racism training for months. And they wrote... Quote, a core tenet of restorative justice is to provide people with the opportunity for a willing apology, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So wrote the president of Smith College. Why would I do this, replied the cafeteria worker accused of being racist by the student. I didn't do anything, she said. You see, the... The escalation of language when it comes to racial and gender issues is just alarming. Remember the hashtag MeToo movement that exposed sexual harassment in the workplace? We live in a world where there are all sorts of injuries that occur. And I'm certainly not saying that we should sweep them under the rug or that victims should not speak up. But I am saying that over against the idea that every offense should be pursued to the full extent of the law comes these words from Jesus that there's no upper limit on the number of times we must be willing to forgive. To forgive others in our lives, in our families, in our churches and in our communities. You know, one of the shows I've enjoyed watching during this pandemic is Ted Lasso. 
on Apple TV. A former football coach in the USA is hired by a bitter divorcee in England who holds a grudge against her former husband for his unfaithfulness. So she hires Ted Lasso to coach a soccer team. Ted Lasso knows nothing about soccer, but that doesn't matter because the owner, the divorced woman, only became the owner because she won the team in the divorce settlement. And she knows that the one thing her former husband cares most about is that soccer team. So she intends to run it into the ground to get back at him. So she hires Ted Lasso, this hapless kind of idiot who will completely fail as a coach and the team will be ruined. But Ted sees possibility and opportunity in every scenario. He treats everyone with kindness and generosity, including the owner. Castigated by the press in Britain, he responds with kindness and optimism. And daily, he just keeps working to improve the team and the lives of those around him. And eventually, the the team begins to band together and actually care for one another, and they begin to win. Maybe it's really that simple, seems to be the message. Just decide who you want to be in the world. Hold on to what is good. Return no one evil for evil. Support the weak. Help the suffering. Honor all people. That actually has a way of turning things around and redeeming people, rebuilding communities. So when the owner of the soccer team finally admits the entire scheme and reveals to the coach, Ted Lasso, that she's been undermining him all along, he simply says, I forgive you. Can it really be that easy to deal with this toxic stuff of life? All these grudges we hold within? John Calvin, the great Reformed theologian of the Reformation period, wrote, Christian doctrine is not a matter of the tongue, but of life. It's not apprehended only by the intellect and the memory, like other branches of learning. It's received only when it possesses the whole soul. It must be transferred into our hearts and pass into our conduct and thus transform us into itself, end quote. So Jesus' teaching deepens and expands the commandments. Thou shalt not murder includes not only restraint from harming another, but also restraint from simply nursing those grudges against another, against a brother or sister in the community. Because that's where the harm begins. When we carry around anger within ourselves and we nurture it. It's toxic. It does damage to both the one carrying the anger and the one to whom it's directed. Not only must we restrain ourselves from harming others, we must also seek the welfare of others. And so 
Our worship on Sunday together is meant to lead to reconciliation with others on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and throughout the week. Anger, it's a normal, it's a natural emotion. It protects us. But stoking the fires of anger into nursing a grudge is something else entirely. Whether it's a sibling or a family member, an in-law, a colleague at work, someone in the church, a neighbor, an undocumented person, a refugee, a Democrat, or a Republican, whoever it is that you're nursing a grudge against this day, Jesus says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, if you are angry with a brother or sister, you'll be liable to judgment. And if you insult a brother or sister, you'll be liable to the council. And if you say, you fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. Go, first be reconciled to your brother or sister, then come and offer your gift. You must forgive seven times a day if necessary. Now, maybe if we took Jesus a little more seriously, we'd have less anger and less violence that spills over in our lives and in our cities and communities. Maybe our relationships would be a little less fractured if we took Jesus at his word. And you see, the solution's not out there, but here within us. That's where implicit bias resides. It begins here in our own breasts and the human heart where grudges get nurtured. You know, someone once said, no one is ever completely useless. They can always act as a bad example. So I guess I can use my own experience as a bad example here. And when it comes to the top toxic stuff of life, I've not always been at my best. Some of you have probably heard this story before, but it illustrates this point so well. It was a cold, rainy Saturday morning in New Jersey. And like most Saturdays during this period of my life, I played basketball for several hours at the gym, and I had this heavy dose of adrenaline coursing through my bloodstream by the end of that. And I actually needed that workout that week because despite my best efforts to solve a difficult problem at work, I could not persuade others that escalating the issue was unwise and unnecessary. The court papers had been filed. A lawsuit would ensue. And as they say, I was fit to be tied. That Saturday morning, I was an accident looking for a place to happen. I was angry. I was nursing a grudge until it began to just leak out of me. So I saw, I actually saw the other car coming from the left, but I decided there's plenty of time for me to enter the flow of traffic before it arrived. As I pulled out of the drugstore driveway, the car raced up on my back bumper and the horn was blaring. I reacted instinctively something just kind of exploded within me slamming on the brakes so the car couldn't get around me I threw the transmission into park I grabbed the door handle flying from the driver's seat with determination and frankly I'd like to be able to tell you being a minister that my first thought of course was that the other driver must have recognized me and was in need of some ministerial assistance 
I mean, why else would that horn be honking at me? But of course, that would be untrue. I rushed back to the other car to see who was driving that darn thing and to offer them some sage driving tips, especially about how to use their horn. She was about five foot nothing, 100 pounds, soaking wet. And I stood there with my six foot four inch frame next to her window and we argued for several minutes. Now, it was not profane, but it was not one of my finer moments. And I confess to you that the cauldron of frustration and anger within me found a flashpoint outside of me. And she received a load of resentment and frustration that had nothing to do with the current circumstances. I was just sideways. I was off my game. I was barely tolerable even to myself as I nurtured resentment within me. So we finally departed after hurling insults at one another's driving for several minutes and then went our separate ways. By the next morning, even my family concluded it was best to avoid me. So I left for church alone. I was an administrator at a graduate school, so I was not officially acting as a pastor of a church. So I arrived late, and I slipped into the pew like many of you have done. Not wanting to really have to encounter anyone, I climbed up into the balcony as the service began, and I inched my way past the tables for the bell choir, and I grabbed the last seat available in the last pew. And then I turned in the order of worship and I reached for the hymnal and the woman next to me glanced in my direction and I immediately recognized her as the woman who needed a driving lesson the day before. Thank God she didn't recognize me. As the opening hymn concluded, I decided to say something. I leaned over and I asked, Didn't we meet yesterday at the drugstore parking lot? Her face turned white. She recognized me and she quickly responded, Be quiet, I'm trying to listen. I wondered what she must be thinking now. Had she concluded that I was actually stalking her? My imposing frame was no longer outside her car, seated right next to her in church, and I was blocking her exit. We sat there silently for just a few moments that felt like hours, and then I finally broke the silence and I said, I take this to be providential. I owe you an apology. I acted horribly yesterday, and it was really quite out of character for me, please forgive me for the way I treated you. She then responded with a series of excuses for her own behavior, but I resisted the inclination to withdraw or modify my apology, and I simply reiterated that I had acted inappropriately, and I was taking responsibility for my own behavior. We both stayed there in the pew through the entire service, worshiping side by side, albeit nervously. 
I then decided to leave during the last stanza of the concluding hymn so that she wouldn't have to engage in conversation with me again. And I concluded <clears throat> that what had been said was enough. But I learned something really important that day. You know, you really haven't been to church if you haven't had to reconcile with somebody whom you've offended or wronged in some way. You see, the good news of the gospel is not that you don't need forgiveness, but that there is forgiveness because you'll need it. And the human predicament is not only with the structures of society and the abuses of those with power, although those exist, the problem is within us. What's needed is a new kind of humanity. And our hope lies not in our ability to purify ourselves, but in the power and the promise of God to enter into our lives, to fashion within us a new heart. And God's love can absorb all that toxicity within us. All the grudges, all the resentment. Now it seems to me there are at least three possible responses to someone who's injured us and or themselves and has damaged our relationship with them in the process. We can condemn the action and then often the person as well. We can condone the behavior, responding with something like, it doesn't matter, I'm not really offended, no harm, no foul. Or we can redeem the relationship and the situation. Condemning doesn't get you anywhere. Many people have some form of a cold war taking place right now in their family. There may be some kind of an iron curtain between spouses or between a parent and a child. Condemning behavior doesn't change the past, but it sure can negatively affect the future. And condoning's no answer either. When our values and standards are lowered to meet our actual behavior, we're in real trouble. I once spoke with a woman on an airplane who was dating a man trying to convince her that faithfulness in their relationship was an inappropriate expectation of him because clearly his biological nature was designed to procreate with many partners. She was actually trying to talk herself into that line of thinking, condoning behavior that's destructive and damaging to our relationships. That's no answer. Redeeming the situation and the relationship has to be the goal. And it begins with forgiveness. So that the power of the past to continue to damage us is limited. It, it stops the bleeding. When Jesus spoke to the woman caught in adultery, he asked, Does no one condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let go of the grudges you hold. Forgive us our debts. And let God's love absorb the toxicity within you as we forgive our debtors. Will you pray with me? Show us, O oh Lord, 
how to redeem our estranged relationships, how to confess to you and those whom we've harmed and take from us the crushing weight of our past so that we might live joyous and redeemed lives as you intend. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.